the jungle. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're in episode two with our guest star, Julian. And if y'all want to know who he is, go back and listen to our last episode that was all about the Pietist movement. But in the meantime, how has everybody been? We're going to do a laid back episode this time. Doing pretty good, man. I am just uh, living the dream and um, enjoying the last of what I think is going to be mild weather. I think it's starting to get a bit warm (laughs) and muggy. And so, yeah. Here comes the summer. How about you, Julie? I'm doing pretty well, Dad. I appreciate you asking. I'm, uh, I'm just living the dream, man. You know, as 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 Snitch mentioned, and uh, I can resonate with that. And uh, I'm in a doctoral program that I'm thoroughly enjoying. I'm enjoying ministry and and uh, even preparing for some new opportunities in ministry. And as we record this podcast, I am enjoying the very last day of my 20s because tomorrow. I turned 30. So this is my last hurrah. And I could not think of a better way to close out my 20s than to be on a podcast uh, with Dead and Snitch. <laughs> well, that obviously. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are we are honored to have you on your birthday eve of your third decade. I appreciate um, it, Dad. I really do. <laughs> I, I remember mine fondly. And then I crossed into the old man lane. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I have to apologize to Julian. Um, you don't know this, Julian, unless you listen to our podcast. But several episodes ago, we were doing one about just different hobbies and stuff Snitch and I enjoy. And I mentioned golf. And I made a rather mean joke about how I always beat you. And, <laughs> and, and I mentioned that it would be somebody that we would hope to have on our podcast in the future. And here you are. So I want to tell everybody. Julian and I played golf last Wednesday, and he beat me by three strokes. So that's, that's where pride will get you. That's, wow. that's that's right. I will say though, folks, in in Dead's defense, uh, just about all the time he does beat me at golf. Every once in a while, I'll pull out a victory, but um, I am by no means uh, a great golfer. Uh, Dead's a much better golfer than I. <laughs> I don't know if I'm much better. <laughs> um, uh, I certainly wasn't the last round, but we've both been slowly improving or at least feeling like we've been improving together over the last couple of years since we started playing. Yeah, I, I, but, think, uh, I, think we're, I think we're making gradual improvements. I think so. We are. We are. But uh, I know, Snitch, you said you had a question you wanted to kick us off with, so go for it. Well, well first, before I did that, I had another question. So golf is like a, a game with a ball and a stick, right? Um, yes. Is that, yeah, it's much yeah. like a lot of games. Except okay. the stick yeah. is shaped differently and the ball is smaller. Okay. And know nothing about it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, um, it's a bunch of men standing around yelling because they hit something the wrong way. <laughs> and I hear there's water, too, and they don't like the water thing. Yeah, when and, and Winston Hill famously said, it's the best way to ruin a good walk. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. That's actually really good. But um, to my question, this is kind of like a holdover from our last episode, but I wanted to touch, Julian, on something that you briefly mentioned, and it was how, uh, from your perspective, American Christianity, a a large portion of it seems to have the, um, the red, white, and blue, to quote you, as part of their, of their religion, so to speak. Explain that a little bit uh, more for us. So I I do believe that uh, Christian nationalism is a problem 
in many portions of the evangelical church. And I believe I said something to the effect that um, uh, many, uh, many Christians, unfortunately, I think that their heart beats stronger for the red, white, and blue than it does for Jesus. And um, what I want to go ahead and articulate as, I, as, I, as we open up this discussion, as we talk about this a little bit, um, I do not think patriotism is, is a problem. I do not think patriotism is, is evil. I don't think there's anything that, that's sinful about uh, being proud of your, your country of origin or being proud of your heritage. I don't, think that's a, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I really don't. And I think that, um, I, I think it actually can be um, a spiritually valuable thing if we keep it in its proper place. But I think that's the key is um, what role our patriotism has and our religion has to be kept um, in its proper place. And um, I think Christian nationalism oftentimes um, manifests itself in many churches when around patriotic holidays, there is, uh, there's far more focus on uh, America and its heritage and its perceived, uh, perceived at, uh, good attributes and the things we love about it, there's more focus on America than there's on Jesus. And I think in the church, um, Jesus, and, and more broadly, of course, God, the, the Holy Trinity, that needs to be our focus when we worship. And I think, unfortunately, um, patriotism almost has been added as a, a core doctrine of many um, evangelicals theology. And, and even on a more um, concerning level, I think there is um, a movement in this country that would say that um, Christianity, Christian culture deserves a privileged place um, in, in American political discourse and American political life. And uh, one of the things I believe very strongly in is that there is to be no compulsion in religion. I believe it was Alcuin of York, a uh, medieval theologian and philosopher who was a uh, who was a an advisor to Charlemagne made that very clear with him whenever he tried to force many of the pagan tribes to become Christian. Alcuin said you you can't force someone to become a Christian and you cannot force someone uh, to become a Christian um, through the culture um, through the culture just leaning into them and bearing down on them uh, shoving down their throats that they need to become Christian. And so I do think that, that Christian nationalism, this, uh, this understanding that uh, America is almost uh, God's new chosen nation, um, this understanding that Christianity, particularly of the evangelical variety, deserves a privileged place in our political discourse, I actually don't think it's healthy because, again, there ought to be no compulsion in religion. Um, uh, People become Christians whenever the Holy Spirit does a work in their heart and in their lives. And, and what we found is that um, uh, some good research has shown that actually whenever the state um, goes out of its way to actively support a particular faith uh, or support a particular uh, stream of Christianity or denomination of Christianity, oftentimes it actually hurts that uh, denomination's uh, vibrancy, that church's vibrancy. And so I do think um, Christian nationalism is something that we are going to have to deal with in many of our churches. Again, patriotism is not an ill, but is our love of country displacing 
our love of Jesus Christ. And if it is, we've, we've, we've gone into idolatry and um, we have something that's uh, not really authentically Christian any longer. Thanks for um, clarifying the difference between patriotism and Christian nationalism. That's an important thing uh, to make a distinction that, you know, one by, on, by itself is, is not wrong. It would be unnatural if you're born in any country to not love that country. When right. your parents and your grandparents and your cousins and everything, and it's, you speak the language, you wear the clothes, the culture, the music, it would be strange of you to, to just na- <laughs> somehow say, you know what, I hate this. I hate everything about this. You know, so patriotism is natural. Even nationalism is natural, but Christian nationalism, I think. So f- thanks for clarifying that. And, but you also mentioned something that I had uh, thoughts of um, in the past. A lot of Christians in America f- almost, they won't say it, but their actions make, lend you to think that they think America is like the second Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And with those thoughts in mind, as I'm reading my Bible, um, uh, as I, you know, don't read it as much as I, sh- I think I should, but as I read my Bible and I come across passages that I've read in the past with this new knowledge of how I see a lot of Christians acting, I come across a passage like Second Chronicles, what is it, 714? Uh, if my people who are called, called by my name repent of their sins and um, this is a paraphrase obviously and then will i hear from heaven and heal their land and suddenly it occurred to me what if i was a christian nationalist and i lived in that headspace that verse would read to me more than what the holy spirit intended it for for it to read you see what i mean Right, and and right. and suddenly I, I I understood it. I understood the headspace, and and like you, you know, I kind of grieved because it's a difficult thing to to um, to address when, and and again, I, I expose myself to a lot of um, in, uh, information, some that may be considered be considered, you know, a little bit off the beaten track with regards to Christian teaching, and there's even a group um, of Christians who. They look at uh, church services and church um, pulpit setups where there's a Christian, uh, uh, an American flag, and they say, "Yeah, that that has no place." Now we may not say that, but you don't always have to agree with something to understand the force or the the idea or the thought process from where they're coming from. You know, you can go too far with anything. But when I heard that, I thought to myself, "Yeah, I'm not going down that path with you." but I see where you're coming from because right. it, they re, it's like a knee-jerk reaction to the Christian nationalism. So anyway, yep. But yeah, no, I, I would agree on uh, uh, Christian nationalism being a problem. I mean, obviously in United States history, we had many of our founders that were Christians, but we also had a lot of other things that went on that, that don't really speak well of Christ. Um, so to tie the two together, like intertwined as if it's the same thing, it's like, but as you were saying, uh, America being the new Jerusalem or something like that, and people treating it as such, I think is dangerous because you're also bringing along all the baggage that men have done drug through this country and trying to lay Christian Christianity into it. Um, instead of just looking at Christ's Christian influence on the country, uh, <laughs> which there was some in the early days. However, I also hear from the other side, as Mitch was talking about, the, this common phrase when, when 
and I'm talking about the people who would say the, you know, the flag has no place in the church and I, I can understand where they're coming from as well. But uh, I also hear this phrase and, and it kind of irks me is that you can't legislate morality. And I know what they mean. It's you can't legislate Christian morality. You can't force people to be moral. But I would also like to point out that all law in a democratic society or Republican society is at least sold to us on the basis of the current moral moral temperature. Um, we all agree that murdering someone's a bad idea. So we have laws against that. That's a moral stand, you know, on what crime is. Um, now to tie it to Christian morality. Well, as we know, the U S isn't exactly a Christian nation, so it's not going to look like that, but law is tied to morality. And I'm just rambling at this point. So somebody pick it up. No, I think that's, I think that's accurate, dad. And, um, at, at some point, um, you've got to, uh, legislate some sort of a moral code, don't you? The very fact that we articulate the things like murder and mm-hmm. just looking at these things that almost everybody would agree with, almost everybody would agree are wrong. You know, we even, even if we got a bunch of conservatives, Republicans, liberals, Democrats, whatever you will, uh, we would come to some probably fairly common understandings that certain things, murder, theft, so on and so forth, are, are wrong. That assumes that there is some kind of moral law that is binding upon all of us. Mm-hmm. And I've really struggled with this. Um, I really struggled with this dead because on the one hand, I, I, I do not want to go down the path of the, the Christian nationalists who say no. that we need to enshrine um, whatever version of Christianity we prefer, whether it's evangelical Christianity, ca- uh, Catholic Christianity, whether it's just some kind of generic uh, Christianity. I, I do not want to say that we want to entrench that uh, culturally as a matter of law. I don't want to go that far. I do not want to say that Christianity deserves a privileged place in the public square. It can be tough to draw the line because all law assumes that there is some sort of uh, all 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 um, all law assumes that there is some kind of moral standard that is binding upon all of us. Well, and this is really this is really where I think that the virtue of prudence has to come in um, as legislators craft laws, because the United States was uh, was founded as a pluralistic society. In that um, there would be no official religion, there would be freedom of religion in this country, and so you're going to have some differences opinion differences of opinion as to how. Ma- um, law should shake out and certain things that Christians might prefer to be illegal and atheists will have no problem with. And uh, maybe a Muslim would have a major problem with and so on and so forth. So whenever you have a pluralistic, diverse society like ours, legislators, I think, have to have this virtue of prudence that they know what is feasible, um, what is actually good for the country and what um, by doing something would actually um, be of harm to a country. Where this gets really difficult is whenever we come across issues, one in particular that I'm very passionate about is the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 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 most Christians would affirm that this is, is unethical because we are, are extinguishing a human life. How do we come to some sort of consensus um, on this issue whenever we have many people 
um, who see uh, uh, abortion as entirely ethical, whereas we see it as um, the extinguishing of a human life. This, this would seem to get uh, right down to the foundation of morality, something where we could all agree and yet we don't agree. Um, it's a challenge, and I don't exactly know how we navigate this. Um, this is why we need the Holy Spirit giving us wisdom. Well, and I, and I would also say, um, especially when you're speaking of topics like that, I do think some of the founding fathers uh, thought a little bit through of that, why we have separate states and such. And I think the mm -hmm. federal government really wasn't supposed to have a place in some of the issues that they do. Um, and that way, more localized cultures could kind of choose how they wanted their state to run. Uh, right. Because you are going to have moral differences in a more conservative state and a more liberal state. And right. we may never see eye to eye on a national scale. Mm -hmm. However, you know, on a state level, it could be more localized and handled, you know, because there may be a state, you know, some of the southern states and things like that, that are strongly opposed to abortion and they don't want to have it in their state. So they could have it that way, and then a different state could do it otherwise. But uh, that's, once again, uh, the federal government has, has overstepped its bounds in many of the constitutional ways. So uh, I, I, we're dealing with it on a national level instead of a more localized level. But I agree, as a pluralistic society, I mean, we cannot legislate, as you were saying, we cannot tell people they have to be Christians. You can't force someone to be a Christian. Um, it, and, and our morals are not going to match the morals of an atheist or a different, you know, of many different groups. And we do have to find some common ground on that because we do live in a nation with a lot of different people. I was just going to comment on something that both of you mentioned. You, you started it off that by saying that it, it irks you to hear when people say you can't legislate morality. Well, of course you can, because, you know, in, in Pyongyang, it's, it's wrong to murder. And they, there's no reference of God at all, well, unless they're speaking of the, the, um, the, their leader. Same with China, same with uh, formerly Christian uh, Scandinavia. Uh, a lot of the same laws apply here as they do there. So, um, and so there must be some universal code, as, as uh, Julian said. Um, even in the primitive, what we, and I'll use that word um, with air quotes, because that even that word has come under scrutiny, even the so-called primitive cultures in this world, yeah, there's still certain things that you, you just can't and don't do, and there's laws, unwritten or otherwise. But I think the proper thing for people to say is you can't legislate righteousness. This and I think you, you guys both touched on that and said it in so many words. And, and that's where, um, and this kind of dovetails with where we were just talking about Christian nationalism. I think there's a faction, a large faction of Christianity in America that wants to have the power to legislate righteousness. And um, they're asking for anarchy. They just don't know it. <laughs> Thankfully, right. it, it won't happen. And that's a good thing. But yeah, just wanted to mention that. I'd love to kind of piggyback on that, on that snitch. And I think that's a really good, um, I think that's a really good point to make. And I want to piggyback. I really should say what on, what on, on what both dead and snitch, what, what both of you mentioned. And um, on, on the one hand, yes, we cannot legislate um, righteousness. Um, we cannot do that. That's, that's out of bounds. And it's really, uh, I think as, as Christians, we've got to say that really only, 
the Holy Spirit, only the work of God can make us righteous. And so if we're hoping that um, laws that, um, you know, Christianity having a privileged place in the culture, if we're hoping that, that it can do that, we're going to be uh, severely uh, disappointed. But um, I also want to, you know, piggyback on what you mentioned, um, further piggyback on what you mentioned there, Snitch. Because um, you're talking, you, you mentioned that, and we, we all mentioned some ways in a, in a pluralistic society, we're going to have disagreements about um, where to draw the lines of what is um, a good thing to do in society, what is a bad thing to do in society. And um, something philosophers and other thinkers throughout history, whether it's uh, Thomas Aquinas or Locke or uh, John Locke specifically or, or, or otherwise, some have tried to articulate that there seems to be a kind of natural law that God has written on people's heart. There is, God has placed a conscience in all of us that even without divine revelation, uh, we sense that there are certain things that are just uh, certain things that are right, and there are certain things that are wrong. There are certain things that are good for society, and there are certain things that are bad for society. And so some have articulated that the state, its only role would be to enforce a kind of natural law, only those things on which we can all, all agree. And so, you know, perhaps the, the two foundationals would, foundational aspects of natural law is you ought not uh, murder your, your fellow citizen and you ought not steal uh, your fellow citizen stuff. Uh, I think that's a good place to at least start and say that there's a kind of natural law um, that seems to be written on all of our hearts, regardless of, uh, regardless of maybe what, um, what creed we profess or what religion we belong to. Perhaps we can start there. We're still going to get into those fuzzy issues though, of, you know, what falls under the category of, uh, of murdering someone, taking someone's life. Does, does abortion fall into this category? Well, a lot of Amer Americans would say no, but a lot of Americans would say yes. And that's where things really become tricky. And yeah. our last, um, in our last, um, uh, in our last uh, podcast that we did together, I, I, I talked about spiritual formation. I talked about revival in the American church. I really do believe that if we want to see a, a better um, a better, a more moral America as Christians, if we really do desire that, we're not going to accomplish that through legislation and through the ballot box. And we're not going to primarily accomplish that uh, through giving Christianity a privileged place in the culture. We're going to accomplish that by the church repenting of its errors, one of them being Christian nationalism, but there are others. The church repenting of its errors, being revived and actually being a potent force for goodness and righteousness. That's the only way we're going to see a more moral, a more holy, a more righteous America, not through imposing Christian values on everybody through the legal system. And, um, and, and I will say it, it goes outside of just like what, what is traditionally, uh, or at least the laws in America go outside of what is traditionally thought of as like Christian morality or other forms of morality. I mean, the reason we have, uh, things like social safety nets is because that was sold on a moral basis of we don't want people to starve. So we're going to have these right. programs that help people. I mean, that's a moral thing. At least it was sold to it that way, you know, um, and uh, and as well as social security that was sold to the American people is that we don't want grandparents to die, you know. Um, right. 
and and yes, there are some hard moral questions that need to be I mean, addressed. And and I agree. I mean, abortion is one of the hardest things there is. I'm sad to see um, Christian nationalists weaponize that um, in a lot of ways when it comes to ballots and stuff. I'm I'm not sad that we're voting. You know, that Christians vote for people who don't support abortion. I'm just sad that that becomes the focal point of why we choose this party or why we choose this group of candidates, regardless of their other positions, instead of putting, you know, somebody we would agree with better in there. Um, but but you face that danger when churches become Christian nationally minded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like we have to elect this guy because he ticks two correct boxes. We don't care what he does with the rest of the stuff. It's just like as long as he's not this and not that, then he gets elected. You know, and I've seen that I, in many, many churches I have attended throughout my entire life. Yeah, Dad, I, I think I think the problem arises. Mm-hmm. And I've even preached this from the pulpit and I was sure I'd be fired the next before the next Sunday. But uh, <laughs> I've even preached some of this from the pulpit that we are on really shaky ground as Christians when we take our eyes off of the Savior, and there's only one Savior, and that's Mm -hmm. Jesus of Nazareth. We are on really shaky ground, and we are in a really bad place when we begin to prop up political figures as saviors. And I think I have, it's been very sad to see. Um, and I'll just, you know, just riff off of my own personal experience. Uh, I've seen people make, uh, I, I've seen Christians make George W. Bush into a political savior whenever he was the uh, Republican nominee. And I think to an even greater extent, uh, people have made uh, Donald Trump the, uh, the savior. And I think we have opted uh, for worldly saviors rather than an otherworldly savior, the only one who can save us, which is Jesus of Nazareth. I'm reminded of the children of Israel who they wanted a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted King Saul and God gave them what they wanted, but it didn't work out very well. I do. Got, uh, go ahead. He did warn them first as well. Yeah, absolutely. He warned <laughs> them. He said, you don't want this. Um, this is going to be bad for you in the long haul. And so I guess what I would say is, and, and that's not to say that the Christians don't vote. That's not to say that Christians don't support political candidates. I've supported political candidates in the past, and I will continue to do so again. Obviously, I don't do so from the pulpit. That would uh, be a violation of, uh, of, of various laws that have to do with, with nonprofits and so forth. But, um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with supporting political candidates. I think the problem becomes um, when we see them as saviors. Um, they are the only thing standing between uh, the American church in utter oblivion. I think when we get to that point and we are placing all our hope in a man uh, and not the God man, Jesus Christ, the only one who we have any hope in, I think we're in a bad way. I really do. I agree. Yeah. And, and I too have supported plenty of political candidates. I support plenty of political ideas. And some of those are based on my faith. That doesn't right. mean I tie Christ to the government, however. And I, I think as we've all been discussing, that's kind of the danger of, of uh, Christian nationalism is, is equating the two, um, overdoing the patriotic. And in all reality, um, as a Christian, uh, nations come and go, mm-hmm. but there is only one God. <laughs> and so, and, and, and so, yes, that, 
it, everything ha- needs to be in its place, but uh, I'm going to let Snitch get back in because I've been cutting him off. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. You, you actually just helped me with my next thought. <laughs> so that, that last thing was useful. You said nations come and go. I can't think of the scripture uh, verse at the moment, but there is something in the Old Testament. I believe it's in one of the major prophets. Not 100% sure, but um, or maybe in, even in the Psalms. But the quote goes something like this. All nations are but are but a drop of the bucket. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the, pr- the proper interpretation of that is God doesn't see nations, their status as we see them. Again, as I stated in our last episode, or maybe it was this episode, so I'm, I'm losing track. Um, <laughs> it, it would be unusual for someone to be born in a particular country and not love his country, not want to, if, if their war broke, broke out, want to go and defend his country and so forth. But in God's economy, we recognize that his view of, 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 um, of, of this ball <laughs> that we live on is a lot different than sometimes how we view it. We're a, lot, we're a little bit too close to the picture that, you know, we need to get in the word of God and get a 30,000 foot view and, 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 and remember those passages like where it's quoted in the Old Testament, then repeated in the New Testament that all fl- flesh is grass, the glory of man is the flower of grass. We need to check history. We need to look at what happened to the Roman Empire, the Sumerian Empire, and all these other empires that were at one time flourishing and realize, and I can't think of the um, an emperor in one of the, uh, the Ming dynasty, I think it is, he says that um, all things after reaching a, a period of flourishing must eventually tend to decay. Th- that's an awful thing to say to a, a red-blooded American. I understand that. <laughs> but it's the reality of, of the nature of everything. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It's in, nothing remains flourishing and, and, and vibrant in, in, in everything else. Am I saying that we are now in the throes? I don't know. I've only been around for a few years, and this experiment is not even quite 300 years old that we call America. But it's something I think that's worthy to consider in, in the light of God's economy, in the light of history, and what everything has happened on, on this planet. You know what I mean? With regards to empires and kingdoms and so forth. Yeah, I, I, I love what you're saying there, Snitch, because, you know, let, let me let me go ahead and say, and I, and I you know, as, as we're talking about Christian nationalism, I, I said early on, patriotism is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Jul- Julian Pace is, is a patriot, and um, I'm not a Christian nationalist, but I am a patriot. And what I want to say is America matters. I really do believe that. And um, there's much that I love about this country. Um there's much that I love about this experiment, as you say, Snitch, the idea that all people have value and the idea that um, all people are entitled to a life where they can pursue um, their dreams, where they can pursue their goals, their desires, where they can be all they can be. I think that's a good idea. I think that's a wonderful idea. I think as, as a Christian who believes in 
the, the doctrine that we are all created in the image of God and therefore all people have value. I resonate deeply with that idea, that, that foundational idea to our experiment. And so what I want to say is that, yes, America matters. I, I love the United States. And um, when I say about the flag, long may she wave, I mean that sincerely. I desire that this, uh, this country not only continue to flourish, but I desire that uh, this country's best days would actually be ahead of us, not behind us. So I wanna say that the United States matters, but I think what we're all trying to articulate here is, yes, the United States matters, but the kingdom matters more. Mm-hmm. United well, States I- matters, but, but the kingdom of God, it matters more. It earns our highest loyalty, not the United States. Well, and, and, I, and I would like to make one point to one thing that each of y'all were talking about, actually. When Snitch was talking about the decay, um, yes, uh, that is the natural cycle of man to create something amazing and then for it to slowly break down. And if it's not tended and not, not well-maintained or not revitalized every so often, um, yeah, it's going to decay. Uh, a great allegory, I, I, one of my favorite books uh, is Animal Farm which basically is kind of a picture of the American experiment and how it can go wrong. You know, you have all these rights and then slowly the, the animals, you know, uh, start becoming less equal than the pigs and the pigs slowly start to look like the humans and act like the humans that ran the farm before. And that is the danger of any time we have a consolidation of power in a single place where men are involved. Uh, it's what's happening in our nation once again, or has been happening since the beginning of the experiment. People try to consolidate power or consolidate wealth. The people get angry. They elect somebody like Trump. Doesn't really get any better, but you know, it happened. And, and, and so to, to the point about decay, yes. And, but I mean, obviously I want to see this country go on. The, the whole reason that I got into this podcast is because I love this country and I, I want to see us work through our problems and, and stem the decay and, and continue to create better, a better society instead of continuing to decay because the decay is real right now. Um, I know in private conversations with both of you, we have discussed just how two-sided this uh and we've discussed this on podcasts as well just how two-sided our country has become and all the people in the middle just are aren't speaking out and just saying hey you know stop slinging mud at each other and let's come to the table and try to figure something out so anyway just a little bit on both of those points yeah i i, I want to piggyback on what you say there dad because you know you talk about the decay in this country and um you know i'll just use a very specific example um, I think our former president, I, I, I think one of the things I want to say is that this country, I, I do believe we will only see a revival. Um, I, I, I think we'll only see, I think we we'll only see a revival in our country's fortunes when we, when we see a revival um, in, in our countrymen's hearts. I really do believe that. Uh, I do believe there's, I, I do believe there has to be a spiritual revival before there can be a civic revival, before there can be a political revival where our politics get, get healthier. One of the things I, I, I have to say about our most, our most recent president before our current president is um, on certain issues, um, politically, uh, I could affirm some of his policies. 
Um, I, I thought that uh, corporate tax cuts were a good idea. Um, I thought that um, some of his Supreme Court justices, in fact, all of his choices, I think, were actually pretty good choices. I agree. On the one hand, you know, politically, I can resonate with some of the former president's policies, but I think what consistently hobbled him was his complete lack of virtue, um, his complete lack of prudence and restraint continually hobbled his ability to help this country. And that's what I see over and over again, is we have a real noticeable lack of virtue in our politics, and it makes our politics ugly, and it makes them unhelpful. And so I really do believe that before we see our politics get in a healthier place, there's got to be a revival in our countrymen's heart. There's in our countrymen's hearts, there's got to be a revival of virtue, of civic virtue, uh, before we see any real progress in our problems. I really do believe that. Well, Julian, you know, you talk about Trump and, and what you consider his lack of virtue. But what about the liberals? It sure beats Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> well, that depends. <laughs> he, uh, he definitely would have, uh, in my mind, and I'll let Julian answer you after this, he, he definitely would have more of the key words that would bring around conservatives when it comes to uh, uh, some of his policies and things. But he also has some key words, and this is how he got elected, to, to bring in the populists and the people. Hillary, um, her policies were always pro-choice, always uh, kind of, I'm, I'm going to drop it. I'll let you answer, Julian. <laughs> I won't drop it. You, you try to answer that question because I, I will say I do agree that Trump was not a very moral man. Some of the comments he made about women, some of the uh, tweets, and obviously his ego would rival my own. Um, but, <laughs> That's saying uh, a lot. Well, so just for our listeners, so our listeners know that wasn't a real question. <laughs> right. oh, just, I know. I know. Oh, I mean, but, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to tackle it. You know? yeah, oh my yeah, goodness. Look what yeah. I started. <laughs> but, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, not to sling too much mud at the former president because he, he slings enough mud for himself, but, uh, but do you I, want me to, do you guys want me to tackle it? Cause I actually so, thought about this a lot. Go for it. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. So I, I guess what I would say is, you know, I remember in, in 2015 and 2016, whenever it was, um, uh, you know, uh, Trump versus versus Clinton. And um, I, remember, I remember many people, they were articulating that, yes, Trump has massive problems, but Clinton's problems are, 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 are more egregious. Uh, Clinton's problems are even worse. And so we're faced with a binary choice. And when you're faced with a binary choice, um, you choose the lesser of two evils or you choose the, the better of the two options. You know, I actually, I, I actually think that that's not unreasonable. And um, I do think sometimes Christians are forced um, to make difficult choices. And, you know, I'm very careful. I, I, I'm very careful as a pastor how I approach the issue of politics, because if, if you're not careful as a pastor, you can be, become such a political firebrand that your ministry is just sullied and made ineffective. And so most of my engagement on politics is in one-on-one -on -one conversations, small groups with people. And I'm very, very careful and I'm very, very guarded how I approach this because I don't want my ministry to be sullied. But with that 
with that um, qualification, um, I, I don't fault for Christians who, faced with a binary choice, did the best they could. Uh, in the back of the Bible, it doesn't have a list of the candidates we're supposed to vote for. And so to some extent, this is an issue of conscience. Mm-hmm. And you do the best you can with what you got. And um, I think if you, if you make the decision that I, I feel this candidate will do less damage, um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad uh, way to vote. If you're faced with what you think is a binary choice, um, then you do the best you can with what revelation God has given us and what, what insight he has given you through the Holy Spirit. My frustration has been, okay, so you vote for, for President Trump out of um, largely pragmatic motivations. That doesn't mean you carry water for him on every aspect of what he believes in and what he says and what he does. Um, you're honest about who he is. You do not become a cultist by voting for the man, if you will. And so I, I think there's a difference between being pragmatic and saying, I'm going to choose the lesser of two evils and uh, vote for this person rather than this person. I think that's the process. I think that's a choice we have to face almost every time we go and vote oftentimes. And well, you, yeah, go ahead. no, you, you and go so, ahead. And, and I would just add one thing to that. Um, I do not think that you always have to look at it as a binary choice. I mean, for me, um, I've, I've not voted for um, either candidate of the major parties in the last two presidential elections. Um, I do think there is always the option of a, of a write-in voting for a candidate from a smaller party. I do not think that that's necessarily wrong. I don't think that's throwing your vote away. I think this is an issue of conscience and we have to do the best we can do with what we've got. Well said. Very well said. And, and also to your point, I mean, you're always going to have to vote at some point between the lesser of two or three or four evils because they're men. Right. <laughs> you know? and, right. Uh, and, and I agree. I mean, a, a pragmatic choice is necessary at times. Um, I do think that uh, both parties have been benefiting far too much from the mudslinging. Uh, and when I say that, what I mean is actually pitting Americans against Americans, you know, in, in these mm-hmm. culture war issues where we uh, we don't even want to talk to or we can't even hold a conversation with the other side anymore because we have been frothed up into this just hatred of the other side um, right. rather it's than going to them. It, it's a serious problem. And, and the people who benefit from these kinds of things are some of the worst actors in D.C., you know, the, these corporate politicians, these other people, they don't have to make the tough choices and do the tough things if they can just make us vote for them because we're scared of the other side. As you were tirading, um, it all came back to me, um, just the, the, the condition of our political system, the parties and the, the, the super PACs, the funding, the, uh, the, the lobbying and the cronyism and the lining of pockets and just the whole mess is, is putrid. And it kind of goes back to how we started this. Revival is desperately needed. And um, yeah. Actually, the, that, the verse that you quoted about uh, how to, how, when God will heal our, heal our land, it starts with his people who are called by his name. Doesn't right. tell us become Christian nationalists and convert all the unsaved people in the country. Exactly. It says the Christians should humble themselves 
and repent of their wicked ways. And right. That's, the, that's and and I think that ties together exactly what you were saying. It's that verse. Yes. But you remember how that passage ends? It ends with their land, and I think this is where they look at that and they see it as, um, well, you know, this my land's America. So if I apply this verse appropriately, if a bunch of us apply this verse appropriately, then God is going to heal our land. And that, you know, revitalizes the Christian faith, which is, you know, which is well, what we really want. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and notice he didn't say he will make everyone in the land holy. He'll just heal it. I mean, he, he uh, in uh, how, how many families did he say it would take to save Sodom and Gomorrah? Um, how many that, that he said it he would take families because uh, uh, Lot was praying, If there are X amount of families, will you spare it? Right, yeah. And he started from, uh, I think, what, 50 and then worked his way all the way down to uh, what was the final number? I believe it was 10. Was it 10 families? Yeah, I think sounds 10, right. 10 yeah. is resonating. Yeah, yeah. And, and there weren't that many families there, there But, really weren't. And, Yeah, there really weren't. So Sodom and Gomorrah went away um, mm. and Lot left. Mm. But, uh, but when I read that verse, what I read is if my people who are called by my name will repent and such, then, then he will heal the land. That doesn't mean he's going to change the complete political structure and make everything hunky-dory and make mm -hmm. all of us agree all of a sudden. What it means mm -hmm. is if we want to see a more Christian nation or a more moral, mm -hmm. even if it's not a Christian nation, Mm -hmm. but one that is more based around God's morals, then it first starts with Christians repenting of all the things we've done wrong. Yeah. Let me ask, let me ask you a question. To fix other people. While, while we're on this, and I know we've, we've gone long, but, but, and yeah. I hate to take a segue, but I blame you, dad. Okay. That's <laughs> but, all. but let's look, let, let's look at that verse. And, and it's obviously there's several applications of scripture. Mm -hmm. And different, depending on what, what uh, seminary or camp you come from, it might be stated differently. But the, this is the way I learned it. it there's an historical application. There is a, a prophetical application. There's a, um, a pr practical application, right? So um, from a historical application, we know that God is talking to the Jews, right? This is the part of the history of the, of the, of the nation of Israel, the Second Chronicles, right? And there's lots of numbers and things like that. And you start going through the kings and so forth. All right. Um, so how much of that passage, we know it's 100% historical. How much are we really supposed to apply it in the New Testament? Now, that's not the word I'm looking well, for, but the, the New Covenant, under the New Covenant. Uh, under, under modern times is what you're basically saying. Exactly. Well, I, I would yeah. point to something actually Julian was talking about earlier. Before a cultural shift, and, yeah. and this is a historical thing, not, not just from the Bible, but, but sure. throughout history, you can look at it. Before a cultural shift, there's almost yeah. always a theological shift. Yeah. Um, yeah and yeah, that, that yeah. doesn't just go for Christianity either. That goes for pretty much every society that's around. If you look at, uh, you know, when Buddhism took over uh, China or started to take over China, they still also have Hinduism. But uh, um, when you look at, uh, you know, here in America, the revivals, how, you know, things changed, uh, it always started with a cultural shift. And that also goes toward the bad things. 
if you look at the Civil War, pre-Civil War, the churches all split. You started having North and South-based churches, Southern Baptist Convention, that came out of that era. And then shortly thereafter, you see the entirety of America split and fight a bloody war. So I, I do think it still has modern implications because I do think God still responds to uh, the prayers and contrite hearts of his people. Good point. Julian? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess what I would articulate here is that um, whenever we are exegeting Scripture and when we're trying to understand it and we're trying to apply it to our lives, I think the first task is understanding the passage in its, you know, its original historical cultural context. And I think what we have to recognize is that that, that passage was, of course, originally written uh, to the Jewish people. This is a, a promise God is making to them that if you'll humble yourselves, if you will pray, if you will turn back to me, uh, then I will bless you for it. I will heal your land, as that passage specifically says. And so what I do think we have to recognize is that that passage is not directly written to us, aka 21st century Americans. It's not written directly to us. However, because it is God's word, it is still for us. And what I would articulate there is even though that promise may have been specifically for the Jewish people, and even though in its uh, understood in its historical and cultural context, its original historical and cultural context, even though it was to a specific people group at a specific time, what we can still do with the Bible, and I think this is entirely legitimate, is then we can move to the application phase and we can articulate that even though this was written specifically to this group of people and not specifically to us, there's still a deeper um, spiritual principle at work here that when we humble ourselves and we repent, when we purify our lives, when we pray to God, good things happen. And not only do good things happen in our life, uh, good things can happen in our culture's life. And that's what I would articulate. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I love about that passage is it emphasizes humility. And one of the things that we've not directly touched upon as we've talked tonight, but I think is, um, but I think has kind of been the, uh, uh, perhaps the elephant in the room that we're not talking about is that one of the things, and, and maybe we just haven't hit on it yet, is um, one of the major problems in our politics is there's no humility in our politics any longer. Mm. Uh, Great point. That's there's, good. Very there, good. There, there's no humility in our politics anymore. Uh, there's triumphalism. And um, one of the things I've got to say is even in the church, as we as Christians talk about and deal with politics, it's such a mess. It's not clear cut any longer. And one of the things I think we've got to say is we've got to be humble, even whenever it comes to who do we vote for in the, in the ballot box. Um, I think it's been a long time since the American people have had two genuinely good choices, if you will. Um, and so I, I think one of the things I have seen is I've seen a profound lack of humility in the church when it comes to politics. Julian Pace has little sympathy for the politics of Joe Biden. I mean, I'm just, I'm not there. I, I am a conservative and I'm just, I'm just not there, but I, I counsel Christians and, and I, and as we talk about politics and we talk about the agonizing choices they face 
And some say, oh, I voted for Trump. Some say I voted third party. Some say I voted Joe Biden, so on and so forth. Um, what I think we got to articulate is the system is so messed up. The, the choices are so hard. I think when Christians disagree, we've got to extend grace and we've got to extend humility. I think one of the last time Americans had two perhaps genuinely good choices to choose from was maybe whenever Reagan and Carter were running against each other. Reagan was the better politician and Reagan was by far the better president. But I got to say that in some ways, I wonder if Jimmy Carter was the better man on a personal level. And so I guess what I'm saying is we're in a place where we oftentimes face very few good choices in politics. And because of that, I think we've got to extend a lot of grace. And I think we've got to walk in humility. I really do. Wow. I think that was beautifully said. (laughs) (laughs) Humility. You know, that's a good thing. Imagine having that kind of tension to choose between Carter and Reagan. That's good tension. That is good tension to have, especially when we look at it through the lens of what we're seeing today. But you mentioned something, that word humility, that's the magic word. I think that's one of the, the unique, not unique, but necessary germs of the Christian faith. You know, years ago, when different candidates were being um, were running for office, I would always, I, I would get angry with Christians and I would tell them, hey, look, these people, because they would be so upset with the person who was in office or uh, running for office and they would get just so angry, just like both of you have said. And I'd always tell them, hey, look, you know, these people didn't come from out of space. They're not aliens from Mars. They're homegrown. We grew them right here on American soil. There's a problem with the soil. So don't really put all of your anger towards this one individual who happens to be winning or running or in office because he comes from America. And if they, or he or she comes from America and that's what they turn out to be as president or vice president, whatever the case may be, it says more about what we're, how we're raising them because they're us. They go to our public schools, they go to our um, you know, um, law schools and all of these different things, and we produce them. They're not an invasion from another planet. And so to your point, if we see uh, a lack of humility um, in, in, in the, at the, um, whether it's the presidential debate or when a person's in pre- uh, president, if we see a lack of humility between the two big parties, the R's and the D's, then it, it's no wonder that we see that same lack of humility in the pulpit and in the pew, because all, if not most of them, started out as children in Sunday school. If you hear their, their, their bios, you know, I was raised in a small town in Arkansas and I went to school <laughs> or I went to Sunday school. They all have some sort of Christian background, even if they fudge and lie a little bit about it. I believe the majority of them had some kind of, so what did, how did we produce these people? This is us. They no. are us. Trump that, that's is a us. Good- you know, and uh, he rep- he resonates with so many people because he is them. Same for Biden. Same for Bernie. Same for Obama. He they are America personified. At least certain factions of America. But to to go back to the the point about humility, because that really wraps it up nicely. I, I, and, and we are um, the church needs to be the church. The ch- the church needs to be the salt. 
and and um, we need to be 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 that salt again, so that we can season uh, all of these people that are. You know, Julian, you might be raising a politician. I might be raising a politician. Dead, you might be yeah. raising a politician in your house. And they all came from dads and moms and grandpas and grand- grandmas. But anyway, I've, I've gone on a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, y'all have both made great points. Humility is is extremely lacking. And, and as you both pointed out, I mean, from, from the ground all the way up, um, our politicians aren't hum- humble because... Honestly, the American people isn't that humble <laughs> yeah, and Christians aren't humble. And like you said, Snitch, we're supposed to be the ones setting the example. If we want a more moral society, you can't force it on people. The only thing we can do is try to live it in our own lives. Um, and and right. if people like what they see. That's how revival happened. <laughs> you know? um, so, uh, so anyway, well, I, I think that was great. Did either of y'all want to add any more? All I can say to that, brothers, is a hearty amen. Uh, yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, well, everybody, it was great to have you all for this two-part. Um, thank you so much, Julian, for coming on. We'll have you back again someday. And uh, um, if, uh, if you all did not listen to the last episode uh, we did with Julian, it was all about the pietists and church history, and you all should go check that out. And yeah. we will leave a link to his, uh, his article in that uh, podcast. Um, thanks. If anybody needs to get in touch with us or would like to drop us a comment, topic suggestions, uh, uh, criticism, whatever, uh, how can they get a hold of a snitch? It's very easy, Dad. Uh, just send us an email at almostcurrentevents at gmail.com. And we know you will because we now have a resident theologian with us. How many podcasters can say that? Not many. Yeah. <laughs> well thank you guys for having me on the program i have thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it and i look forward to the next time thank y'all so much